Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 16, down through verse 30. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. And he came up to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him, and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote me, quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask for help. Father, thank you for this, your word. It is light and life. Lord, let the sermon of Jesus preach to our hearts. Lord, my lips can't do that. Only your spirit can be at work to do that. So be pleased to do so. Be our teacher, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So we've celebrated Advent, the Christmas celebration never ends. Just because Christmas has come and gone, does that mean it's over? Of course not. Of course not. We continue to celebrate the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Today and next Sunday, We look at Epiphany, or the light to the Gentiles, and then we'll jump back into Exodus, our study of Exodus. That's what Epiphany means. It's a light 
to the Gentiles. Today I want us to explore that reality in the life and ministry of Jesus as as he begins his public ministry. We've spent a lot of time talking about the, the background, his birth, and that narrative, and it's beautiful and it's necessary. Then Christmas Eve we considered the divisive nature of who Jesus is, that Jesus himself demands a reckoning by us. That's what John is all about. And then we come to Jesus' coming out as a public minister here. We have a sermon recorded for us. It's a very interesting sermon. Then we have some interesting responses, right? We have the people, the congregation, they're very happy with Jesus. He's saying all the right things. And then he says some stuff to clarify. And then not only are they angry, but they want to kill him. So we're going to consider this text. Our text brings us into a synagogue, a local congregation in Nazareth, the hometown of Jesus. Their psalms would be sung, scriptures read, and a lesson given by a seated rabbi. Uh, we, they did things kind of the opposite of us. The people would sit all around, perhaps even uh, in a raised fashion, uh, the scriptures would be read, then the rabbi would t- take a seat to deliver his sermon. Jesus chooses as his sermon text Isaiah 61 and 58.6 with a couple of lines left out. He's doing so intentionally. Luke points us to his reading of the scripture. Jesus leaves out one line, especially in Isaiah 61. He reads the text. We just read it. He hands back the scroll. He takes a seat. And he began to say, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The content of his sermon comes directly out of the the five points of the text, proclaim good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty the oppressed, and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Each of these are hard to get our minds around because we think we already know what they mean. When we read this text, it's very easy for us to read because we're like, oh yeah, I get it. I know what he means. And that's a dangerous place to be in this text in particular because that's exactly what the people thought. Great. That's great. All these things are great. We know these realities well. And Luke wants to emphasize this link throughout the gospel between the poor and the captive, the blind, the oppressed, and our deep spiritual need. It's exactly what he's doing here. So who are the poor? The word poor can cover poverty of every kind, but the emphasis here is on a conscious, moral, and spiritual poverty, which is often the lot of the financially poor as well. Luke doesn't draw many distinctions like that. He links spiritual poverty right alongside actual poverty. The Greek word here for 
Poor is the same word Jesus uses in the beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Same term. What about the captives? Who are they? Technically, this means prisoner of war. However, looking around at his audience in the synagogue in Nazareth, how many prisoners of war are there? It's got to mean something else. Bondage of many, many forms. Spiritual bondage. Bondage to money. Bondage to sin. Bondage to immorality. Bondage to Satan. Bondage to guilt. Bondage to sensuality. Hatred. Greed. Death. Captive. Captive. Who are the blind? Blindness in Scripture is used again and again, both physically and spiritually, to designate absolute lack of spiritual sight, having eyes they don't see and ears they don't hear. That's the description of an idol in the Old Testament. Who are the oppressed? The root idea of this term oppression is broken into pieces or shattered or crushed. Jesus comes to those who are squashed by life, by circumstances, who can see no way out, find themselves living in oppression, and he gives them freedom. And then, so that's the, that's the text of his sermon. And did you hear his sermon itself, or at least all that Luke wants to give us of it? Here is his sermon, te- here is his sermon right here. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What's the sermon? What is it? Jesus is saying, it's me. I am the sermon. Here's the text, Isaiah 61, all these great things. What's the lesson? Jesus says, I am. Today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. I am the lesson, Jesus says. Do you see it? That's his sermon. His sermon is himself, his identity. Who is going to do all these great things? Who is going to free the captives? Who is going to bring justice for the poor? Who is, who is coming to the oppressed? Who is coming to those in deep shame and guilt? And Jesus is saying, I am. Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What makes the people happy? Their first response is, Woohoo! This is great! Isn't this, isn't this Joseph's kid? What makes them so happy? They liked it. They're not outraged. They're not offended. They're not shocked. They're happy and they speak well of Jesus. They all had a grid for this sermon. They all had a grid for it. And it wasn't spiritual. Their grid was, we're we're good moral people. We come to worship. We're here on a Saturday. We're, We're here when we're supposed to be. We're doing our thing. But we're under Rome and they're bad people, so we understand what it means to be captive. Right? We're under foreign rule. We're the captive, and someday the Messiah is going to lead the good people over the bad people. We're the, the good people who are oppressed by Rome. We have no control of our, of our lives and our country, and a leader is coming to fix it. Not to mention, he's the hometown boy. They saw him grow up, doubtless. Uh, through the years in their midst. 
He's the hometown boy. How great it is that he's using these great words. We saw this kid grow up. Where did he get this? We know his parents. They don't talk like this. The question is, do they really hear the sermon? The same question, by the way, comes to you and me. Do we really hear it? Do they really hear Jesus' sermon? And do we? Jesus actually isn't giving them a ringing endorsement. He's calling them out as you are the poor, you are the blind, you are the captive, you are the oppressed, and all these things spiritually. And they utterly miss it. They utterly miss it. How does the gospel strike us? When we hear the good news, the good news, the reality of it is it begins with a a terrible situation, right? That we are lost in sin. That we are rebellious. That we are captives, slaves to sin and slaves to death. How does that strike you? Are you good with that? Yep, that's me. I'm a slave. Captive to sin and bondage to death. That's what my sin deserves. Are we okay with that? Really? If we're really okay with that, we have to wonder, do we get the truth of the scriptures here? The gospel comes along and it's, it's pretty offensive. What makes them angry? So they're happy. Jesus is, man, he's great. Isn't this great? Then they turn angry and what happens? Jesus exposes their hearts. He knows that his sermon hasn't landed. They're way too excited about this. So he digs in a little more. Here he's going to give some illustrations. The first one is this. He tells them they'll no doubt quote him the proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you do, uh, you did at Capernaum, do here also. And here's what's going on. He knows what's coming next is, okay, he just had this great sermon. Everybody's happy, and they're going to say, hey, Jesus, do a trick. Do a trick. Take out your dog and pony and do a show. Because we've heard that you've been doing wild things in ministry. This is um, the spring of Jesus' ministry. So this goes along, Luke is very intentionally organizing his narrative. This goes along with a, a lot of other things that we know about happening in Matthew, in Mark, and in John. Jesus is doing this broad ministry. He's already feeding thousands of people. He's already healing the sick. He's already curing the blind. He's casting out demons. He's exercising incredible power in this region. And he knows what's on their minds. He's just told them something astounding. And he's just pointed to himself as the one who's doing all of that. He is the Messiah. And he says, the next thing you're going you're gonna to have me do is a trick for you. What's he pointing out there? Their abject unbelief. Their hard hearts. You don't get it. You don't get it. You don't believe. You want a trick, not a Messiah. He's exposing their heart. Then he goes on and says, A prophet has no honor in his own hometown. 
You know me too well to really know who I am. Is that a scathing condemnation of us? Are we too comfortable with the Jesus that we think we know? Are we very settled with that? We don't pursue to, to know him more, to grow in our understanding of who Christ is and what he's come to do. And here he gets to the heart, right here with two more illustrations in which Jesus defines poverty, captivity, blindness, oppression, and jubilee along very different lines. Here it goes. One is a widow from Zarephath. 1 Kings 17, Ahab was king of Israel. His wickedness had surpassed all of his father's pretty blazing condemnation. There had been some pretty bad guys. God judged Israel by a drought. And he sent his prophet Elijah first to go live by a brook and be fed by ravens. Then when he's been there a while and ravens are bringing him bread, then he moves him to Zarephath and takes him to a widow. And you're going to find a widow there, Elijah, and she hasn't got much food to eat. But you ask her to feed you. She'll give you bread. She'll sustain you. Then you have to read this. Go home and read this. It's It's an astounding thing because what happens is she meets a widow just as the Lord had told him and she's about to die and so is her son. She's got enough food left to make bread for her and her son. They're going to make bread. They're going to eat the bread and that's going to be the last bread they have and they're going to die of starvation. And Elijah says, no, you feed me first then your oil won't go away and you'll have enough flour left to sustain you through the whole famine. Feed me. And she does. She does. She doesn't ask for anything else. She goes back. She, she makes bread and brings it to Elijah and feeds him. She doesn't ask for a dog and pony trick. She's, she's as far outside as you could possibly get. A woman, a widow from Zarephath, from Sidon, Known enemy, the lowest of the low, dying with a dying son, and God comes to her, sustains her life, sustains her son's life. Read the whole thing. He dies. Elijah intercedes and he lives. Jesus says, were there no widows in Israel at that time? What's the answer? Of course there were widows. Yet God went to who? An outsider. Listen, we have to catch the offense of the gospel here. We think, hey, we think it's good and it's for us. And this is kind of a a middle class gospel. And that is a lie. The gospel is not a middle class gospel. We think it's white and it's not. The gospel is not. It's not just a white thing. White, black, brown, yellow. It's for every people group, every nation, tongue, and tribe. And this is what so offends them. This is what blows their minds apart. This is what utterly undoes these people to the point that they want to kill Jesus. Yes, we're fine with a deliverer as long as that deliverer is for us and we're the good people and they're the bad people. And Jesus points them to the Old Testament and said, look, 
I utterly blew this grid up back there too. Were there no widows in Israel? And yet God sent his prophet to a widow woman, poor and dying with the last tiny bit of flour and oil she had, ready to die, and spared her life. Then he goes to the other end of the spectrum, to the, to the wealthy, powerful Naaman. 2 Kings chapter 5. Now, known enemy. This is the king's right-hand man. This is the general of the Syrian army. And if you read the Old Testament at all, you know they're constantly in skirmishes, back and forth. This is not a great relationship. Somewhere along the way, Naaman contracts leprosy. At this point, it's Elisha's time as prophet. This is after Elijah has gone. His wife, Naaman's wife, tells him that a captive Israelite, a POW living in their home, a young Israelite girl says, hey, there's a prophet in Israel. His name is Elisha, and he can, he can fix this. Trust the Lord. Go to Elisha. So he goes to the king. The king says, yeah, go to Elisha. I'll send a letter to the king of Israel. Make sure you're okay. So they work all this stuff out. He goes with his envoy. They knock on Elisha's door. Elisha sends another. You can read all about it. It's fantastic. He sends a servant to the door. He says, have him go wash in the Jordan seven times, and then he'll be healed. Closes the door. I mean, this dude is powerful. He, he, he's a general. He's rich. He's wealthy. A servant answers the door. Hey, go, go dip in the Jordan seven times. And he's offended at first. He's like, we have cleaner water in Damascus. Way cleaner rivers. If I'm going to take a bath in a river, I'm going there. He turned around to leave and one of the servants says, hey, what, what he just said to you, that's from the Lord. You better listen. You know what Naaman does? He listens. He doesn't say, hey, I need a dog and pony show. He doesn't go beat on the door and say, hey, I want to talk to Elisha. You bring him out here. He doesn't do any of that. He's convinced. He's convinced. Then he goes to the river, dips seven times, and his skin is clean and pure out of that filthy Jordan River. What is Jesus doing with these two stories? Saying the gospel doesn't work along the grid that you think it works. You think it works based on your status. You think it works based on your race. You think it works based on your upbringing. You think it works based on the amount of money that you make. And none of those things matter to God at all. The gospel is for outsiders. The gospel is for the crushed. The gospel is for the spiritually poor. That's who it's for. The gospel for outsiders, a Gentile woman, a Gentile man, a Syrian at that, and a woman from Sidon. How, how, do, how do we do with this? How does this sit on us? It could become easy to begin to believe that we receive grace largely because of where we're born, the household we're born into, and all the rest. And we can applaud Jesus. Great sermon, Jesus. Good job. That's really good for those people over there. Do we see ourselves as the spiritually poor? 
is the one who desperately needs grace. At some level, it would be very dangerous for us to believe that the gospel is meant for the likes of us and not the outsider. Very dangerous. It means we're not trusting Christ. We're trusting everything else but him. That's exactly the kind of thing that he's blowing up right here in his coming out sermon in Luke. He's utterly destroying it. It's not your race. It's not your wealth. It's not your status. Those things can never be grace to you. Do you believe, really believe, that God loves people made in his image and wants to extend his grace to the furthest corners of the earth? Do you believe that? How do you think about people who aren't like you? Who don't look like you? Who have a different culture than you? A different language than you? Are they somehow second class to God? Not at all. Not at all. God will go after the outsider in a heartbeat. The gospel is for outsiders. The gospel is for the spiritually poor. Notice in these examples that Jesus chooses one who's actually poor and one who's very wealthy, one who has nothing and one who has all power, one who is a a woman and then a strong, uh, the strong military leader. And he's setting them, he's setting them up like this and saying, hey, they're the same. They're the same. And grace goes to both of them. Outsider, man, woman, Gentile, powerful, no power, plenty of food and money, no food, no money. Both, here's the point, both are spiritually poor. The widow was a Gentile idol worshiper, and yet she believed. She just believed. She just accepted it. Yeah, I'll go make you bread. We're going to make our bread. We're going to all eat smaller cakes of bread and then die. But she didn't. Both are spiritually poor. Notice that in Jesus' explanation, this is exactly who he comes for. Look at verse 26 again. And Elijah was sent to none of them. Were there no widows in Israel? Yet Elijah was sent to none of them. Look at it. But only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon. Look at verse 27. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. He's going after them. He's going after the outsider. God is going after the poor. He is going to rescue them. He's going to free them from bondage. Do you see that? He could have gone to anyone and he goes to the ones furthest on the outside. The least likely. If you're sitting around in Israel at the time of Elisha, who's the least likely dude who's going to get Yahweh, who's going to get our God and understand? It's probably Naaman over there. Hey, we're going to giggle because we heard he he contracted a skin disease that he can't cure. God goes after him. Only him. Only this widow. It's beautiful. Who are the spiritually poor? That's the point. 
That's the point. Jesus is like, you're the spiritual poor. And when they finally got the lesson, they were furious to the point of wanting to kill him. So the question for us is, who are the spiritually poor? It's those who look beneath the surface and know for certain that God doesn't owe them a thing. God owes them nothing. They are in no position to demand of God what he owes them. That God owes us a good life. Here's the test. If God doesn't give you what you want, do you get angry? If so, be careful. If God does not give you the life that you want, and you feel like he owes you, you are on dangerous ground with him. At your core, you believe God owes you something that he's withholding from you. If this is the case, then you're, you're going to your own well for salvation. You're looking to yourself. In fact, you're defining salvation on your own terms. Because in that moment, what God is withholding from you, if he would only give it to you, then you would be fine. You actually wouldn't need Jesus at all. If he would just give me what I'm asking for, then I'm good. We have to be really careful. Spiritually poor person knows that they have no hope. God doesn't owe them a thing. Not a thing. He doesn't owe us anything. And that's the case with the widow and with Naaman. They have that in common. They don't deserve a thing from God. They're as far on the outs as they can get. And Jesus says, I love them. I love them. And I pursue them. Only the spiritually poor who know that they're outcasts come to Jesus. If you don't know you need Jesus, why would you ever come to him? The gospel is for the actually poor. In God's economy, the way he set things up is so that those who are on the margins of society are the ones who tend to get grace much quicker than those in the mainstream. It's true, cover to cover. Just consider the upside-down reality spelled out by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. I'll just read a few of them. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy, and so forth and so on. Why? Why the poor in spirit? Why those who mourn? Why the meek? Why those who hunger and thirst for righteousness? It's a central tenet of the gospel itself that God who was rich became poor. So that those of us who are absolutely and abjectly poor might be rich in him. It's not exclusively this way. It's not only the poor will get it. But the poor are in a much better situation to know that they've got no bargaining chip with God. They can't go to Him and claim their status. Let me conclude just by reading this exchange. This is quoted by uh, a minister named R. Kent Hughes in his Ephesians commentary. He records this story. You'll see how it fits. Just indulge me and let me read this. A large, prestigious church had three mission churches under its care. This is uh, 
in England. On the first Sunday of the new year, all the members of the mission churches came to the big city for a church com- uh, combined communion service. Uh, and those mission churches were located in the slums of the city. There were some outstanding cases of conversion, thieves, burglars, and so on. But all knelt side by side at the communion rail of the Church of England. On one such occasion, the pastor saw a former burglar kneeling beside the judge of the Supreme Court of England, the very judge who had sent him to jail where he had served seven years. After his release, the burglar had been converted and become a Christian worker. Yet as they knelt there, the judge and the former convict, neither one seemed to be aware of the other. After the service, the judge was walking out uh, with the pastor, and the pastor said to him, Did you notice who was kneeling beside me at the communion rail this morning? The pastor, oh, the, the man asked that. The pastor replied, Yes, I didn't know you noticed. The two walked along in silence for a few more moments. Then the judge said, What a miracle of grace. The pastor nodded in agreement. Yes, what a marvelous miracle of grace. Then the judge said, but to whom do you refer? The pastor said, why to the conversion of that convict? The judge said, I was not referring to him. I was thinking about myself. The pastor, surprised, replied, you were thinking of yourself? I don't understand. Yes, the judge replied. It was natural for the burglar to receive God's grace when he came out of jail, he means humanly speaking. He has nothing but a history of crime behind him. And when he saw Jesus as his Savior, he knew there was salvation and hope and joy for him. And he knew how much he needed that help. But look at me. I was taught from earliest infancy to live as a gentleman. That my word was to be my bond that I was to say my prayers, go to church, take communion, and so on. I went through Oxford and took my degrees. I was called to the bar and eventually became a judge. Pastor, it was God's grace that drew me. It was God's grace that opened my heart to receive him, and I am a greater miracle of his grace. That man understood that salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. And if any of us would be saved, that's what we have to believe as well. God has done a great work to save us in Christ. And when the people got that, when the people got what Jesus was calling them, what he was saying about them, it so offended them that they wanted to kill him. What does it do for us? Does it make us love him more because we know to the marrow of our bones that he doesn't owe us a thing and yet God became man to save us